All right, welcome to episode 30 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Her name is Meg Van Dusen, PhD. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and mindfulness practitioner in private practice since 1994. She's worked with children, adolescents, and adults, both in inpatient and outpatient settings throughout the Los Angeles and Seattle areas. Her knowledge of and passion for attachment theory, mindfulness, interpersonal neurobiology, sleep, and dreams informs her belief that meaningful connection with ourselves and others helps us handle stress. She's here to talk today about her book that just came out called Stress in the U.S., 12 Tools to Tackle Anxiety, Loneliness, Tech Addiction, and More. Welcome, Meg. Hey. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And Meg, there's, so I was going through your book this past week, and man, there's like a million things that I want to talk about today, and I thank Alan too. So the thing is, I don't know how much time we'll have, and I have like a million quotes with me. And so I actually want to start off by reading one of your quotes and asking you a question about it, if that's okay. Sure. Okay. So in her book, Meg writes, and this is referring to a quote by the author named Black Elk, who was a spiritual Native American author. And so Meg wrote, the above quote from Black Elk refers to the time when Native American tribes were dismantled by white men. I use it because I believe we are reliving in a time in which our attachments to each other and our nation are at risk of being dismantled yet again. When it comes down to it, what we have in this life is each other. We need each other not only to thrive, but to survive. So then my question is, Megan, your assessment of kind of what's going on in the world, what do you feel like are the current barriers to healthy relationships? Well, I think there's a lot going on, um, particularly in the U.S. Um, so obviously the, the divisive political situation that we're living in um, has been, I think, particularly creating uh, you know, a fair amount of stress for most Americans. Um, I think we also have uh, even bigger stressors that, you know, for some people might be less conscious, but uh, are nonetheless very real, such as the fact that the, the planet is dying. And so what we have known as our home, um, you know, I think we're coming to terms with the fact it might not always be here. Uh, and that certainly, um, you know, can rattle people and uh, start to feel like uh, if you don't have a home, um, then what are you connected to? Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, one of the more pervasive and daily variables that we're grappling with um, that affects our relationships with each other is technology. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, obviously technology uh, has its benefits in numerous ways, but I think like many things, we... Uh, you know, found something new and cool with tech and particularly with smartphones and get very excited about uh, inventions like that and forget to look at the dark side. And I just don't think that we were prepared for um, how much technology um, gets in the way of relationships. And, and I do think that we see that um, particularly in the Z generations, you know, they are the ones that have really always had tech in their life um, and always had smartphones. And uh, yet they really rank today as the loneliest generation uh, in the U.S. Yeah. And how do attachment styles factor in? So I guess my question will be in terms of attachment styles, what is sort of, what are the attachment styles and what are the prevalent attachment styles or what are, I guess, what is the most prevalent attachment style or styles that you're seeing in kind of in the world around us? Well, actually, I think that's changing. So we have secure attachment, 
Um, secure attachment. So attachment theory is based on John Bowlby's work. He was a British psychoanalyst in the 1950s, um, worked for decades um, doing research on trying to understand um, what creates a sense of well-being, what creates good human development, um, and really looked at the relationship that infants and toddlers and children have with their caregivers and really found that um, what's called secure attachment um, is dependent upon the way in which one's caregivers, you know, interacts with the baby. Mm -hmm. um, so if there is a consistent and caring and soothing and, and available caregiver within reason, um, then the infant is likely to grow up with a secure attachment style. Other attachment styles that um, Bowlby discovered, and also with his work with um, Mary Ainsworth, um, were uh, ambivalent attachment styles, which, you know, really is a person who uh, is longing for, really desiring, is quite anxious um, uh, to um, have mirroring or attention or fulfillment of needs from another human being. Um, but then when that person receives um, some comforting or, um, you know, uh, presence of another human might actually resist that person. Um, so that's why it's called ambivalent. Um, there's a desire for, but at the same time, a fear of um, close relationship. Mm -hmm. um, you have dismissive avoidant attachment style. Uh, which is actually uh, people who deny that they need people at all. Um, and so, you know, you might have that in somebody who basically uh, feels quite independent, um, doesn't feel the need to be in many relationships or certainly not, not many close relationships, feels they're just fine, when in fact that isn't actually true. So often with dismissive avoidant types, um, you know, we find that there um, is a significant amount of depression mm -hmm. and loneliness. Um, so, and then, you know, depending on the theorists, I mean, a lot of people break these attachment styles down into, you know, all different um, sort of nuanced types. Um, so anxious, preoccupied, um, anxious, resistant, um, fearful, avoidant, dismissive, avoidant. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think for the sake of being, you know, um, you know, just uh, simple and, and, and to try to explain it clearly, um, we're really looking at, I'm really looking at in the book, secure attachment versus insecure attachment. Mm -hmm. um, and then what, you know, the, the anxious type versus the avoidant type in the insecure. There's also a disorganized type. I don't talk about that as much. Mm -hmm. There are people who really grow up with very abusive parents and where the inconsistency was not just um, about a parent being critical and then loving, but really quite much more traumatic than that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to bring it back to that uh, example earlier about technology, I mean, it is the case that we're overly stimulated. That, uh, for example, with um, the amount of time that people use their phones in the day, for example, I believe there was some sort of statistic that you cited uh, regarding teens where um, if a teen used their phone five or more hours a day, they were more likely to be, um, I believe, uh, 
forgive me if I'm forgetting, uh, stressed or depressed. And then if somebody depressed. used it, depressed, depressed. And then if um, they used it one hour a day, they were less likely to be that. But in the case of teens, it's not going to really happen because yeah. they're kind of glued to their smartphones. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and and so, you know, what we're left with is we're really going to have to intervene on this ourselves. I, I mean, you know, um, it, it's about engineering ways to set boundaries around technologies, not just for your teens or for your younger children, but for yourself. I mean, it's true for adults as well. Um, you know, there's a lot in my practice. There's... The, the bottom line is smartphones are addictive. And the reason that they're addictive is because they set off the uh, dopamine response. Mm -hmm. um, makes you want to go back for more. Uh, and so they're, they're doing two things. On the one hand, they're setting off a stress response every time it dings and rings and buzzes and mm -hmm. all of that. It actually creates sort of an alert, right? that gets us hyper vigilant. Um, and that, that's creating a bit of a stress response. There's also the fact that, you know, with social media, um, people get likes and people get um, messages and teens really respond to that in a, you know, kind of a mirror me sort of way that um, sets off the dopamine response. So uh, what I've seen in my practice and what other many other practitioners that I know have seen as well is the fact that the smartphone has now become... Um, a source of addiction, and that we've, you know, often had to work with people um, with regard to their use of the smartphone uh, as if we were working with somebody who was addicted to drugs. Yeah. Wow. And what do you think is, I guess, the attachment style or the connection between attachment styles and addictiveness in terms of, um, I guess, social media use, but also just tech use as a whole? Well, I mean, I think that there it's definitely an insecure attachment. I mean, that definitely, um, you know, there's a looking for, and particularly with regard to social media, there's looking for connection. There's a desire, a craving of connection, a, a preoccupation, if you will, mm -hmm. with needing connection. Securely attached people don't necessarily have that level of preoccupation um, with or, or anxiety around needing attachment. And so people who are anxiously constantly looking at their phones um, are really looking for connection. Uh, you know, I think one of the things, though, that's happening is that technology may be contributing to, um, you know, more of an avoidant attachment, mm -hmm. um, particularly within the Z-Gens, because, you know, so many of them get together less in person, and that's a fact. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're having virtual relationships. Uh, and so it's, it makes it then difficult when they become used to just communicating virtually, um, especially their intimate feelings, um, to actually feel safe, you know, in the flesh with somebody. Mm -hmm. And so there's a tendency more to avoid that. Yeah. And what's interesting about your book is that you actually um, are trying to seek ways of uh, tackling the, the issue. Uh, for instance, I mean, you're right. It's something that we've, uh, technology, the way we know it now, our relationship to it now, is has never been before seen. It's not something that uh, we're 
we're used to, right? I mean, if you wanted to fill up your day with 24 hours of, well, not 24, you have to sleep, but barring that, mm -hmm. if you want yeah. to fill up your day with whatever content from the internet, mm -hmm. you really could. And th what's funny is you'd have to be very selective with what you fill your day with, uh, even if you try to do something like that, because there's too much content out there. Mm -hmm. which right. Is, yeah, which is why it makes sense to... Uh, set boundaries on yourself like for uh, maybe how much time you spend uh, on the internet or on social media or yeah. communicating by texting or mm -hmm. um, and I, I believe there was um I was gonna say this later but it just came into my mind Definitely. now why not mm -hmm. um, so I believe there was something that uh, was mentioned in terms of um, children having less uh, screen time at schools I believe there was something where you'd said um, it would be a good idea if weekly like once a week there would be um days where st students wouldn't use uh, ipads or uh, or any sort of technology at all just to kind of uh, build those intimate relationships with each other and with um w uh, with the teacher as well in the classroom this way they're not always on their mm -hmm. you know on their tablets on their yeah. tablets mm -hmm. and, and correct such. Yeah. yeah correct i mean i think you know and i think that we've seen that um in the Oakland uh, public school system where they were the first public school system, I believe, to introduce what's called restorative justice. And while that is a program really designed to help reduce, you know, ex expulsions and suspensions and uh, acting out behavior essentially uh, among adolescents um, and younger kids, uh, it also has, a, a, I think, a great benefit in terms of creating a sense of security. There really hasn't been much research done on, you know, does uh, restorative justice create a more secure attachment um, among students with their school? But my hypothesis would be that it would because you, what, what it really is based on is what are called circle groups. And this is based on some tribal practices where, um, you know, the entire school is involved. It's a system change. It's the perspective change and the students and the administration and the teachers, you know, gather in circle groups, really creating, the aim is to create very safe spaces mm -hmm. for people to be honest, open, vulnerable with one another. Um, so that there's, uh, you know, less of a hierarchical feeling where somebody's feeling um, less than intimidated by. And as a result of, you know, this type of practice, um, you know, expulsions and suspensions in the Oakland Public School District have been greatly reduced. It's It's been a highly successful program. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. so, no, so that's good. That means that, like, uh, actually these, these ideas are, are gaining momentum, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I'm, yeah, once upon a time, um, I mean, I'm sure people have had this vision years before I did. But even like, I don't know, like 10 years ago, I was thinking, oh, it'd be great if meditation were taught in schools. Yeah. If, uh, th things like that, or um, perhaps uh, teaching people uh, like the critical thinking skills, like about nuance and uh, thinking styles and things like that. And in mm -hmm. a way we do, we mm -hmm. do teach critical reading in schools. I, I wouldn't say I was not taught that, mm -hmm. but... 
But it, but it is interesting how these ideas nowadays are gaining way more momentum and it's interesting to see what's going to happen even years from now, mm -hmm. actually, as far as that goes. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so and just in terms of the connection between social media and kind of different attachment styles, Meg, you know, there was something that really kind of profoundly stood out to me, something you wrote in your book. And so you talked about having personas. So in kind of just psychology as a whole and the things that Alan and I a lot of the time talk about and just things that I deal with with my clients, with just my friends, sort of people in general is sort of how do you develop intimacy and what is intimacy how does one pretty much kind of develop or foster a connection with a human being being seen and known and really loved for who they actually are and so what happens for us as human beings a lot of the times because and this is not like so social media I think is more of a symptom of it than an actual than the actual problem because I mean we've been sort of wearing masks for years right in terms of kind of society and social roles and so we try to develop these personas in order for the kind of tribes around us to accept us and to admire us and to kind of put us up on a pedestal because in some way in our kind of a, I guess deeper psyche more sort of um, kind of I guess uh, more primitive psyche we know that kind of in order to be accepted in order to survive right we have to sort of have a higher place kind of in the hierarchy in society and something that Meg wrote in her book she wrote in discussion or in, um, in sort of in her kind of elucidation of what a persona is so she wrote a persona is like a role or character one adopts in order to present what she or he thinks as a positive, likable image of herself to the world. Think of it as a mask that conveys a simple, captivating face while hiding the more complex, true one. And so, Meg, I wonder from you and from your perspective, what do you think it would be like if a person's entire life was just that, was just sort of this mask, and kind of their entire kind of world was just wrapped up in a well-curated Instagram page, where they felt like the only way that they could achieve happiness was to actually become something that they aren't, this sort of idealistic image that's presented to the world in this very kind of um, bubble-wrapped way. Or gift wrapped away. Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing that already, and I think that you know w what happens: loneliness, depression, anxiety, and estrangement from the self, and insecurity in the self. Uh, just you know, perpetuating a problem because that all of those things would make it then harder to go out and truly attach to other people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, lonely people in particular. So the more you're hiding behind a persona, um, the less able you are to be your true self. That produces a lot of tension, first of all. It's stressful. Yeah. You have to keep up the image, and therefore you have to maintain a vigilance, really, to make sure there are no cracks in the image. So number one, it's stressful, but number two, it's lonely, and, and lonely people... You know, typically loneliness is based on perception. It's not based on how many people you actually have in your life. Mm -hmm. um, but lonely people are less likely to connect with others, um, you know, to go out and, and, and meet people and talk in any kind of real way because their assumption is that they're flawed yeah. and that, you know, that they're in a one-down position and that they're going to get rejected. And it's scary for them. So I think that the you know, persona-based lifestyle that social media certainly is a platform for, um, you know, has an adverse effect in the sense that it can perpetuate loneliness and perpetuate um, these, you know, deep-seated fears that somehow one is flawed behind the mask and therefore not acceptable. 
Yeah, and in connection to stress reduction or in connection just to stress in general, what do you feel is the connection between the mask or I guess, well, yeah, the mask and the persona to kind of an overall or one's overall or kind of, I guess, um, persistent sense of anxiety? Well, because, it, you know, what makes us feel safe mm -hmm. in the world um, is acceptance. Mm -hmm. um, and if we don't feel accepted for who we are if we feel like we have to maintain the quote-unquote mask all the time or we don't feel accepted for our true selves um, we don't feel safe mm -hmm. and when we don't feel safe that sets off the stress response and what I'm talking about here is a more chronic stress response right mm -hmm. a response um, that you know you can a, a kid can spend hours on social media in their room and then have to get up and go to school the next day mm -hmm. um, and just that act can be stressful for them you know having to now they're having to interact with people in the flesh and it's a switch it's a, it's a different kind of feeling so, you know, it, may, it causes people to maintain a, a vigilance and to try to maintain the same image that they had on social media when they're out in the world among other people in the flesh. Yeah, yeah. And, and this facade, as you said, it, it wears on you. It's, it, how long can you really maintain a facade like that, you know, versus um, how will you feel while maintaining it? Mm -hmm. I'm sure in the beginning it's not so bad but then as time goes on that can have cascading effects one on just how you feel two on how you interact with others could have it could affect virtually everything yeah. um, well and I, I think it's what you know minority groups have felt forever um, here in the states and and that is not accepted for who they are mm -hmm. um, and so they've always lived with some degree of stress I think it's particularly heightened right now given what's happening politically yeah. but um, you know it's akin to that in a way when we think about you know how groups of people who have been discriminated against you know fear being out in the world for that reason um, and and you know many have feared for their, their lives for understandable reason now social media is not that threatening mm -hmm. um, but it's it has the effect of making you feel as if you know who you truly are is not accepted and that's kind of the bottom line yeah, wow. And it's interesting that you bring that up because like one of the, I guess one of the biggest struggles that I have with my own clients is internalized racism. So like it was from, I remember a client telling me about sort of what it was like when she was younger that like well, pretty much there was just Hollywood, right? So she said, you know, kind of like we would see whatever on television or in the movies, what beauty was. And she's like, but now it's in your face all the time. So for her, she's like, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a part or a member of, my, of a minority group. She's like, for me, right, I always, I constantly feel as though I'm ugly. And then it's like before I was reminded about this every time I was in the movies or every time I was watching television. But now I'm reminded about it every single day when I'm on my phone, when, oh, I'm, wow. sc yeah, when I'm scrolling through social media. So when we started examining why she felt ugly, that was really it. It was because her features were not the features of kind of, you know, the sort of um, the pinnacle of kind of Caucasian beauty. And it was because that they, they weren't, right? So they didn't resemble them at all. And so the kind of work that we did in this sort of, yeah, I guess what we tried to, the idea that we tried to kind of create or 
are. I mean, I guess the question that we try to answer was, can one be beautiful without meeting a particular standard of beauty in a particular time period in a particular culture? So what's so interesting is that when we kind of look at Instagram and these very well curated pages, what we see is kind of the pinnacle of what we're supposed to be. And in some way, people kind of internalize that. And they say, well, it's either I try to find a way to adapt to this particular style or this particular, um, what would you call it, like this particular form of beauty, or I'll never be that. And if I'm not beautiful, then what am I? Then I must be ugly. So, I mean, Meg, have you ever found that in your work? Oh, yeah, all yeah. the time. I mean, all the time. And, um, you know, I think, again, I, I write about this in the book, I think um, with, you know, a lot of the stress that Americans are experiencing now and the divisive culture that we live in, um, and particularly with, you know, a an apparent rise in white supremacy, mm-hmm. um, you know, my minority clients, my ethnic minority clients, my immigrant clients, um, my gay and lesbian clients are particularly stressed out um, because to them the world has become less safe mm-hmm. um, even than it, than it was four years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you think it's just because of this... Um, constant how should I say like all these like uh, not necessarily sound bites but there are a lot of things that um that are done on the news particularly to just kind of push on these buttons that kind of you know trigger your attention uh mm-hmm. whether it's uh somebody on the left you know saying somebody on the right is wrong and why yeah. they're ro- uh, wrong or the opposite yeah and just kind of the polarizing yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and just kind of um I don't know. Is it the media? Would you say it's like a, I wouldn't say I mean, they're to blame. You know, the, the media is great in many ways. I mean, journalism is great in many ways. And I think that, you know, it's one of the great privileges we have in the States is a free press. Yeah. But I do think that because of information overload, you know, because of what you guys were saying before, you know, we've got news at our fingertips. It's everywhere. It's in restaurants. It's yeah. in airports. It's on treadmills. It's you know, it's everywhere you go, that we do have to be careful to understand, you know, is this is this helping us or is this now negatively impacting us? Mm-hmm. And just like with, you know, the other aspects of technology that I talk about, I think we need to set boundaries sometimes around the news um, because so much of it um, is so negative these days and people can just really begin to feel, you know, um, depressed, helpless, um, ineffective. Whereas this idea of coming together that I talk about in the book, um, you know, uh, that, again, apparently we're doing less of, according to research, um, especially the younger generations. Um, But this idea of coming together, uh, like in the restorative justice programs um, and even in protests, right, that we've seen, um, actually can be really um, helpful in you know, kind of down-regulating and, and, and creating um, the, the sense of a, what I call a holding environment um, based on D.W. Winnicott's mm-hmm. work um, that, uh, you know, really fosters a sense of safety. So really coming back to the idea that secure attachment comes from a feeling of acceptance, um, a sense that you belong feeling you know we need a tribe we have to have each other and so it's really the experience that we have each other's backs um and so i do think this more coming together in person and not just coming together to hang out but in a re in real ways 
um, is what's needed. Yeah. And Meg, and so what is a holding environment? A holding environment is essentially um, an environment uh, in which you feel safe and secure, in which you feel understood, Mm -hmm. in which you feel taken care of. Um, You know, it's based on the idea of, quote unquote, good enough mothering. I mean, Mm -hmm. we don't expect people to be, you know, uh, extremely consistent in their parenting. We're human beings. Mm -hmm. Um, But the holding environment was based on uh, the environment that a, a child might be in that is consistent enough, that is present enough for that child, that it seeks to understand that child and therefore creates a sense of safety. So it might be the caregivers, it might be siblings, it might be, you know, we can expand that holding environment, uh, you know, as we grow and develop uh, in time to be our circle of friends or our workplace or, um, you know, even as I talk about in the book, our nation. so, you know, because we do personify political leaders and countries as um, attachment figures. Mm-hmm. And what would you say is the difference between one's true self and one's persona? Um, well, again, I think the true self, I mean, this is, these are really complex. Mm-hmm. You know, we could probably talk for hours about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> simply speaking, um, the true self is the less defended self, mm-hmm. you know, Um this is why mindfulness is so important and why I talk, why I do devote a chapter to it because mindfulness is based on uh, the concept of compassion and non-judgment. And so when we are not judged, when we are compassionately related to, we're more free to be vulnerable. Um, We don't have to have as many defenses. Um, And then our true self, you know, comes out. I mean, so many of my clients are just, afraid to be silly or afraid to have fun or afraid to dance let's say or do things that they're afraid of you know being made fun of for even though that might be something that instinctively they really want to do you know that would be the true self battling the persona one thing that i liked from that chapter was the example it was two examples but um there was this client of yours named larry uh, who was, uh, had terrible negative self-talk. Yeah. And then when he learned um, how to practice mindfulness, what mm-hmm. ended up happening is he became a little more objective towards that, um, that inner voice. Mm-hmm. And instead of uh, identifying with it, he found that through practicing mindfulness that he was able to kind of look at that voice and maybe instead of uh for if i'm i might be butchering this but instead of i am sad like there is sadness in me mm-hmm. not necessarily right. yeah not not identifying with it making it like who you are yeah. but kind of putting this distance between yourself and the emotion and sort of getting um more of a sense of uh calm and understanding towards oneself and it, it was interesting to read where he was before he practiced that and then where he was after that. And and I think it's very interesting. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's observing, it's observing your thought processes um, rather than getting hooked by them. Yeah. And I was, I was wondering (laughs) um, if maybe we could talk about maybe like an example of maybe a way someone could practice uh, mindfulness. Let's say like somebody's listening to this for the first time and th- they don't know what mindfulness is. Maybe something they can do to practice it. 
Yeah, I mean, so people shy away from the word mindfulness often because they attach it to meditation. And, you know, some people have, um, you know, associations with meditation as being a religion and they're not interested in that. Other people simply say, I don't have the time to sit and, you know, meditate for 30 minutes. But mindfulness can really be practiced without meditation. It's simply bringing your mind. It's being intentional about where you direct your mind. And uh, in the case of mindfulness, it's bringing your mind to the present moment. I think because if somebody is starting out with mindfulness, probably the easiest way to begin a practice would be to close their eyes so that, that they don't have visual distraction. Uh, and just to sit for one minute, let's say, and to follow the breath that moves in and out of the nostrils. And when I say follow it, I mean to just bring their mind to uh, noticing the sensations of the air um, as the air moves in and out of the nostrils. Now you're bringing your attention to what's happening very specifically in the present moment. On top of that, you're making sure to not judge it. Oh, am I breathing too fast? Maybe I should be breathing you know, more slowly. You know, maybe I'm doing this wrong. Those are judgments. And mindfulness really um, you know, is free of judgment. It's, it's purely observation uh, you know, of how the breathing, what's happening with the breath, for example. Um, so that would be like a one-minute intro <laughs> practice um, to mindfulness. Um, if we want to get a little bit more in depth in terms of what people's thoughts are, because, you know, we create our own stress often um, by, you know, these perceptions we might have about ourselves that are negative. Uh, and so if a person is chronically, kind of like Larry, if a person is chronically saying, you know, I'm fat, I'm never going to meet anybody, nobody would ever want to be with me, you know, I'll never have enough money, I'll never, you know, kind of these negative um, messages that you're constantly um, barraging yourself with uh, is creating stress response in the system on a regular basis, because why? Those are threats. And so with mindfulness, we get to kind of back up and take a little bit more of an aerial view pause for a minute. And again, I, I have people close their eyes. Uh, although mindfulness can be practiced with your eyes open. Uh, and to just, you know, observe those thoughts and, and watch, you know, what the mind is doing, seeing it as a thought that's passing through, and not something that's necessarily true, or something to identify with. Um, and so even naming it, you know, as, oh, there's critical thought, releasing it and coming back to a place of compassion and non-judgment. Huh. Yeah. You know, what's uh, funny. I, I really wish. So uh, for anyone watching, they don't know that Meg can't see us. But actually, while yeah. we were doing that one minute exercise, I was I was kind of doing it, uh, you know, as, as a practice. Okay. I was paying attention to my breathing. And I wish you could see the, the look on my face. I was like beaming, smiling by the end of it, you know? <laughs> and, 
Yeah. And it's fantastic because uh, what this does is um, it, it regulates that stress response in your body, right? Uh, the cortisol and adrenaline that kind of build up from chronic stress. If, if somebody is... Uh, exp- oh, and also please correct me if I'm wrong. That That is the case, right? That there's a buildup of cortisol and adrenaline if someone's overly stressed, like chronically? Yeah, it's majorly. It's, <clears throat> it's, it's mainly cortisol. And... Yes, it's chronic cortisol production. Um, I'll try to refrain from getting into too much detail, I guess, about the stress response. But, you know, we do have adrenaline and we have cortisol and there are two different hormones. And and cortisol kind of comes in after the adrenaline. Adrenaline is the fight flight. It gets us to actually react when we need to, Mm -hmm. like jumping out of the way of a speeding car. The cortisol comes in to give us the energy that we lost. Um, this is all a matter of seconds, but to give us the energy that we lost as a result, you know, of uh, having to jump out of the way of a speeding car. Um, but when you're under chronic stress, you, the cortisol keeps pumping up and pumping up, trying to restore the body, restore the body, um, and actually creates inflammation in the body. So the mindfulness engages the parasympathetic nervous system via the breathing, um, which is the calming part of the nervous system. And so that's the idea of reducing cortisol. Um, but the other thing that mindfulness does, and I think this is really key, is that it engages the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that we use to focus on a task. So you can mindfully walk. So we just did a breath exercise focusing on the breath. But you can also walk mindfully, you can eat mindfully. It's paying attention to the task at hand in a very specific, non-judgmental way. And when we do that, it disengages what's called the default mode network. Um, And that's actually the part of the brain that tends to ruminate. Um, And uh, what researchers have found, it tends to ruminate negatively about ourselves often. You know, again, going back to Larry, it's the part of the brain that basically says, I'm too fat, I'll never find a partner. It's the part of the brain that tends to mind wander when we're not focused. Um, And so meditation engages the prefrontal cortex. And when it does that, the default mode network tends to quiet. And it also kind of seems like when you connect with another person, that's also a form of mindfulness. So where it's like you're sort of when you're kind of meditating, you're kind of, I guess, hyper aware or more aware of yourself and more accepting in the non-judgmental way, obviously, of yourself. But it can also be the same thing when you're in an intimate bond with another person. Yeah, just being present right, in a non-judgmental and I will add compassionate way. Yeah. And so, and I find that like, for the most part, that's what all of us struggle with, because we are kind of bombarded most of the time, if not all of the time with images of perfection from God knows how many areas that most people really sort of struggle to reveal themselves. And something, um, well, in terms of like, let's say like existential therapy, which I practice. So a lot of what I read about what the authors describe is sort of this idea of feeling or the fear of intimacy or the fear of kind of finding yourself and kind of revealing yourself. And um, I found kind of not just in terms of my own therapy, 
therapy work, but in terms of just people I've known that a lot of what we struggle with is that sort of sense of vulnerability. And we feel like we need to be perfect before we're actually accepted by other people. And so the trouble is because a lot of us are sort of exhibiting personas that we think that the next person is perfect. And then we're like, oh, now I have to be perfect too. And then the next person they also thinks that they need to be perfect. And so we all believe that in some ways based on our social media profiles that we're perfect, even though none of us are perfect. And it's like the one thing that we're all afraid to reveal. Exactly. But what's fascinating it's about irony. that? Yeah. What's fascinating about that is that's where our commonality lies. Yes. Because we're yeah. all going through that. Yes. So true. Uh -huh. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's so true. I mean, I think one of the things I will say is that with insecure attachment mm -hmm. or, you know, with loneliness, like I said before, it's really hard for people to just go out there. It feels like they're throwing themselves to the wolves to go out there and be vulnerable and be themselves. Um, and that's, again, where mindfulness comes in as a vehicle for creating secure attachment. So the good news about attachment theory is that your attachment styles can change. You can change your attachment style. You're not stuck with it the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, I mean, research has shown that, you know, attachment styles can typically change uh, from one style to another, mm -hmm. usually over a period of about four years. Um, when you are in relationships, and I'm going to include the relationship to yourself, mm -hmm. um, that is, um, you know, w with a secure uh, individual. And so what I mean by that is in mindfulness, if you're practicing mindfulness and you're practicing non-judgmental, compassionate um, attention to the self, um, you are now in the act of creating a more secure relationship with yourself, one in which you don't feel judged by you, one in which you feel accepted by you, one in which you feel like you've got your own back. And when you're able to establish that, it's going to really help in going out into the world and being more vulnerable with other people. Yeah, absolutely. And so the thing is, sometimes people kind of, I guess, wonder or are afraid. They think, well, you know, what if I go out into the world and I am rejected for who I am? Right. And the thing right. is, you definitely can be. But the question sure. is, what does that rejection actually mean? So is it that you're rejected because you're inherently flawed or defective? Or is it that that person is rejecting you because in some way they're projecting their own insecurities and their own vulnerability onto you? Right. Or, or, or you guys just don't resonate. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, well, that's could, if you're like an a, asshole. That, no, it's a, sometimes <laughs> it's not always like a, a like a deep seated neuroses that's going on. Sometimes mm. it's just oh, uh, I'm interested in this and you're interested in that, so maybe we're just not gonna. Oh, I'm sorry. Well together. You're, you're right, but when I say rejected, you're right. You're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I could have been clear on no, that. No, no, no. When I'm just that yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. You I, said it yeah, yeah, yeah. No, when I'm saying rejected, I mean like somebody's like, I really don't want anything to do with you. With you, you're like not the person for me, friendship wise, relationship wise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Because when I mean rejection, I mean like harsh rejection. I don't mean like, hey, you know, like I have other things I need to do and we just don't really have oh, common okay. interests. I'm sorry. That's why I should. The nuance there is important. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of so my point is yeah. that so sometimes it's possible for people to be rejected and it's not really for the reasons that they think. And it's because kind of like as a society, we're so kind of dead set on being perfect that any sort of hint of imperfection causes us to tremble with intense fear. So it's like if another person 
is able to be vulnerable with, with us that kind of presents to us our own fear of vulnerability and we're like oh no get the hell away from me I don't want anything to do with this I don't want to acknowledge <laughs> my own insecurities yeah. so so my question to you Meg is how do you think we can sort of begin the process of kind of helping each other understand that like we're pretty much going through the same struggles together and all of the garbage that we put up on Instagram that that's mostly fake that these are like kind of the surface level I guess the surface level kind of appearances of who we actually fully are right um so i i'm always reminded of something that Thich Nhat han said mm -hmm. to um a child who asked him you know i'm being made fun of at school and you know what do i what do i do when that happens and he said something to the effect of, well, you look that person in the eye, which I have to say is an important point here in my book about eye contact. Mm -hmm. You look that person in the eye and you just say, I'm sorry, you're suffering. Wow. And he didn't mean that facetiously. <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. He really means that. Um, because when somebody is critical of us, um, in some way they are suffering. Um, they're not free. Yep. Um, they're struggling with their own judgments. Um, and as you said, you know, earlier, um, you know, Alan, that the, uh, the projections that are happening are, you know, um, highly likely that whatever somebody is criticizing you for is likely how they're feeling about themselves on an unconscious level. So really keeping in mind that um, when other people say or do unkind things towards you, that it's really coming, coming from their own suffering. And that when you have compassion for other people, even people who might be saying or doing things that are unkind, I'm not talking about abuse because you do have to draw lines there. I'm not yeah. saying just mm -hmm. put up with it. But, you know, to, to have compassion for other people um, allows you to no longer feel like you're at the mercy of them. Yeah, wow. I love yeah, that. it makes you less reactive. Right? Yeah, you, yeah, well, you don't feel, if you have compassion, you realize that they're suffering and that they're not, they don't have power over you. Right, and it's not personal, because that's one of the major problems that I feel like people experience, that they essentially automatically, and this is natural, this is not something you can just obviously turn off, but we automatically personalize other people's judgments of us. We think just because someone says it or thinks it, that that automatically believes that it's true. So right. it's like, it's I, what I want, I really hope that kind of our audience takes away from this kind of, this part of the conversation, is that it's quite possible that another person might perceive that you're any of the things that they say you are, but it's also possible that you're not those things that it's not so black and white that just because someone highly critic or harshly criticizes us doesn't necessarily mean that in the kind of objective sense that we are that thing that that person believes that we are right and if you're if you're practicing um compassion toward the self if you're for example actually saying you know alan i'm here for you um you know <laughs> um, you know, if you're saying things like that, you maybe you have social anxiety and you're going into a big, you know, group of people and you're saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm here for you and, you know, I appreciate you and, you know, those kinds of things, um, you are calming the nervous system. And you're allowing yourself then to feel more connected to those uh, ideas and less distracted by unless what you know we often say in mindfulness less hooked by um, you know other people's statements 
Mm-hmm. And so just to kind of shift a little bit, just for time's sake, um, so there was a part of your book, Meg, that was by far my favorite, and there were definitely a lot of parts to choose from. So it actually reminded me of a show we had, I think it was about two months ago, with the rapper hip-hop legend Napoleon. So actually, so the person who um, we're, we're kind of in touch with, and the person who runs um, the O4L online network, his name is Vegas. So I remember I read this part of your book, and I actually sent him this quote, and I was like, holy shit, man, it's like literally talking to Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like what's so cool about it is that we're really coming up with these same ideas no matter where we're in right no matter whether we're philosophers psychologists sort of just your average joe whether you're you know a hip-hop megastar like napoleon it's like a lot of the sort of insights that we come to which is so cool is so freaking similar and so meg i wanted to read this quote and i wanted to ask you a question about it so please bear with me because this is a bit long <laughs> okay so uh, meg wrote and this is in regard to um do, well i don't want to this is like a bit much in terms of the actual research, but this is in regard to uh, the research of a clinical psychologist. So she wrote that this person's research points to a generational increase in extrinsic goals, such as fame and wealth. Such aims may seem tantalizing in that they connote power and therefore the possibility of more quote-unquote likes, as in terms of social media likes. But in reality, they are merely shiny objects that when attained wind up being short-lived band-aids to contentment. Research has always shown that relationships with one another, I mean the real ones, not the digital ones, are what make us happy. Yet teens and millennials seem to be chasing the money-slash-fame dragon, which only results in more stress, as very few people attain either. If they happen to attain their extrinsic goals, these same fame chasers don't actually feel better about themselves. And so, Meg, to my, my question to you is going to be, how come fame and kind of widespread adoration actually doesn't bring about a positive self-image? Like, how is it that when people sort of set the goal of, let's say, fame and wealth and say to themselves, you know what, I'm going to now feel better about myself, or I'm going to finally feel like I'm enough, that that actually doesn't happen when they attain either one or both of those things? Well, the difference between extrinsic and intrinsic goals, intrinsic goals, you know, an, an example of an intrinsic goal might be, you know, I want to, you know, be a good person with other people. I, I want to, you know, um, treat people well, let's say. Um, an extrinsic goal might be I want to make a lot of money. Um, and the reason being is that you know, we are driven, and there have been many books written about this. I'm reminded of Matthew Lieberman out of UCLA, um, uh, who wrote the book Social. Uh, you know, we are driven, and, and Bowlby's point in attachment theory is to uh, connect with one another, mm -hmm. um, to find comfort from one another. That is one of the things that helps actually develop the brain um, and helps us feel uh, happy, mm -hmm. essentially. So, you know, money is fleeting. Um, it's, it's external. Um, but intrinsic goals are not. Um, there are things that, you know, we can be connected to with who, whomever we are with. Um, and because attachment and because relationships with each other really are the key to our well-being, and that is based on, on research um, and probably your own experience, um, you know, it's proven to be the thing that actually makes us happier. So the old, you know, cliche of money, um, money can, um, doesn't buy you happiness yep. um, is true. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question. 
Yeah, I mean, well, from my from my understanding, what you're saying is that, for at least the way I see it, is that the sort of the things that are extrinsic are sort of more fleeting, and it's not something that you can really hold on to. It's like if you don't kind of accept that you temporarily can enjoy it, that if it's something that for you is the pinnacle of your self-esteem, then what's going to happen is it's going to be the seesaw. You get it, you have it, and then you lose it, and you don't. Was that it? Um, yeah, it's like when John Kabat-Zinn, you know, says, wherever you go, there you are, right? Mm -hmm. um, that if you're with yourself um, and you've got a secure attachment internally, yeah. uh, what's called an internal working model of mm -hmm. secure attachment, um, you know, then you're right. It's not based on the uh, fluctuations externally of everyday life because that's just a fact. Yeah. Our external lives are... Uh, forever fluctuating um and anything can happen yep. you can yeah yeah plus anyone who's tying their future goal uh, their sorry their happiness to any sort of future goal like they're saying to themselves i'll be happy when i'll be happy yeah. when mm -hmm. you're, I know. yeah you're training your mind not to be happy now yeah. right? really good point absolutely yeah. and i also think that if you do have a kind of harsh inner self-critic what happens is a lot of times that so the way our kind of minds work is that we're pretty much we're prone as human beings to cognitive distortions and biases and so if the inner critic is that harsh what happens is even if you attain those things it finds a way to disqualify them it says oh well you're not really that good or don't you dare think of yourself as being better than you actually are so it's like um uh, meg have you ever seen the film cool runnings with john candy <laughs> oh my god i think probably eons yeah, yeah, yes. Same, same as everybody <laughs> who I ever ask. Yeah. yeah. So there was this great quote in the film, and we talked about it a little bit, I think, a few episodes ago. So John Candy's like this disgraced uh, Olympic bobsled coach. And so in the film, the um the team's captain asks him, he says, like, like, how come you did it? Like, why did you cheat? You literally had everything you wanted. You pretty much had, you know, kind of fame and you had fortune, you had the respect of everybody in the Olympic community. Like you were literally it's a sort of pinnacle of your perfection, a profession. And uh, um, and so he essentially says to him, he says, look, man, he's like, having a gold medal is a wonderful thing. But he says, if you're not enough without a gold medal, you'll never be enough with one. Yeah, and exactly. I feel like, right? And I feel like that's, that's sort of... Exactly uh, it. Yeah, and I also I feel like that's sort of the pinnacle of what we're talking about when we're talking about chasing fame. It's like people think that it'll sort of silence the harsh critic, but unless you actually sort of deal with why that critic is there or why you feel like a failure or why you feel like you're worthless or useless or whatever it is, whatever you attain, that critic will disqualify it. It'll say it doesn't count. It doesn't matter. You're never going to be those things that you want to be because that's not who you are. Yeah, well said. Yeah, and creates sort of an addiction. You know, you see that with shopping addiction, for example. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow, that's interesting. How so? Well, you know, people who think, you know, God, I'll be happier if I just mm -hmm. have that new, you know, toy. Right. And, you know, get the new toy and then, you know, three weeks into it, need the next, you know, better version of that. Um, because it's not really creating happiness. It's the idea that it will. Yeah. Um, it's the idea that these external things will create happiness, will make you feel better if you have these beautiful things around you or if you've got the fancy house or whatever it is that you think that you might want. And it's not that those things aren't, I don't mean to downplay, you know, um, the fact that, yeah, it can be, you know, fun to, you know, strive to buy, you know, a beautiful home or a fancy car or whatever yeah. but to you know assume that that's actually gonna make you happy is where we run amok yeah 
And so I also wanted to read another quote by you about, um, it was about compassion, which I really loved. So you wrote that a plethora of research has emerged on the power of compassion and that the power that it has on our well-being, including reducing anxiety. The concept is simple, really. If we have compassion for ourselves and others, we free ourselves from the scary burden of judgment. You know the fear of looking like a fool. So compassion is not selfish. Compassion is not pity. Compassion is understanding oneself or another without criticism. And so we earlier talked about kind of how mindfulness could be used as a tool in order to foster compassion. And so Meg, I know in your book, you talk about a pretty reasonable amount of them. And so what would you say are some of the other important tools for fostering not only self-compassion, but compassion for other people as well? Um, well, there's releasing judgment. I mean, that's number one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, uh, you know, really, I think it's astounding when we pay attention mm -hmm. to how many judgments we actually have in any given day yeah. um, about other people or ourselves. Um, and that creates a stress response because it doesn't foster safety. Because mm -hmm. remembering that stress is connected to feeling safe, to not feeling threatened. Mm -hmm. So judgment is a threat. So releasing judgment is a, a, you know, one of the biggest things um, to decreasing stress um, and certainly fostering um, compassion. I think, you know, this idea of helping others um, is also key. Um, so you can be, compassion can get you to help others, mm -hmm. but you can also get compassion as a result of helping others. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not, you know, really feeling it or you don't think it's that big of a deal, and I'm not talking about, you know, some big project. I mean, it could be something as simple as, you know, picking up something, you know, a stranger dropped on the street for them. Um, it could be something as, you know, simple as holding the door for, you know, a mom and her baby with the stroller. I mean, little tiny ways of helping people throughout the day um, have been shown to decrease stress. Yeah. and create a sense of well-being. And then you can get that sense of compassion or connection with other people. Because compassion is really about um, putting yourself in another person's shoes, doing something about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's an action. And would you say that compassion in that sense is sort of regarded or I guess related to releasing judgment? That it's like if you can sort of foster compassion for another person, then somehow that will translate into you kind of, I guess, having a more nuanced understanding of what's going on and why they are the way they are. Yeah, I think it's bi-directional. I mean, I think you can focus on releasing judgment and, and thereby, you know, um, be able to create more compassion. I think you can practice having compassion and releasing judgment will... Um, you know, go with that. Yeah. And it was another, do you want to, not sure. Uh, you know, go ahead. Okay. I'll say that. Well, it was, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, and there was another tool that I definitely cannot pronounce, but it was, I thought it was pretty much, from my opinion, of course, so the best one in your kind of toolbox. I don't remember what it was called, but you said that uh, it's used by the Zulu people, and I loved it. Can you tell us oh, what Salbona. that is? Oh, How do you pronounce it? Salbona. Salbona? Yeah. Okay. And what is Salbona? Um, so... That is a greeting. Um, uh, it's a it's a it's a Zulu greeting that when people meet each other that say "I see you" or translated "I see you deeply." 
Um, it's it's not a hey, how you doing? As we often say yeah. in the states, you know, kind of off the cuff, and and sometimes we really mean it, and oftentimes we really don't, aren't even waiting for the answer. Um, uh, so this is really more of a, an exchange of I see you, I know you see me, and the reason that's important um, is because it. It has to do, first of all, with eye contact. I talk a lot about eye contact um, and brain development and the importance of it and how we're having less of it because we're looking at our phones all the time, mm-hmm. um, among other things. Uh, and that when you look somebody in the eye, you're also practicing mindfulness. You're present. Um, you're really present with that other person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're also practicing this concept of I see you. This isn't about me. I see who you are and what's happening with you. And getting the mind a little bit out of, once again, the default mode network where it's thinking, it's preoccupied with, okay, is, you know, are my clothes looking okay? Am I right? Am I saying the right thing? Am I, you know, when you're meeting somebody, you're, you're not thinking about that. You're actually focused right there in the present moment, eye to eye on them. Yeah, I love that. Um, and by the way, to, to go back to compassion, would you say that, um, I mean, not necessarily synonymous, but would you say compassion and understanding are, are related in the sense that, uh, mm-hmm. it brings me back to this quote, um, actually two quotes. One is, uh, to understand all is to forgive all. Uh, Bill Irwin. Yeah. From yes. Bill Irwin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, um, another one, uh, seek first to understand then to be understood. Um, I feel like there's somewhere in there is compassion, at least in the attempt of trying to understand someone. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's about trying to, I mean, you have compassion for another person if you see them in some way. You might not totally understand their suffering or why they're suffering. So you don't have to get it all to have compassion. Um, but you can still see that they're suffering, um, and that can bring about compassion. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So the, so the, uh, the understanding um, is helpful, but it doesn't have to be there in um, a specific way. That's interesting, actually. That that actually puts me at ease because, yeah, I suppose to be compassionate, you don't necessarily have to understand. Sometimes it's more of just, um, how should I say, like just... Uh, for instance, like opening the door for the mother and her um, and the stroller, mm-hmm. right? Did you really? I mean, on some level, you do require understanding that, of course, you know it's not easy to get through the door. Right. But barring that, I mean, I suppose you don't really need it in order to show kindness. And sometimes right. you can act as if. Remember, we talked about that. So sometimes you can even act as if you're compassionate, even if you don't really care about what the other person is going through. And you can actually get this really great result where they say thank you, or you know, they're sort of full of gratitude. And you can even tell yourself, like, you know, oh wow, holy shit! Like this compassion stuff is actually pretty cool. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, su- I suppose if you're coming from the frame where you're not feeling compassion mm-hmm. initially, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Actually, one thing I like about what you said, uh, Meg, is that um, if you if you do something, uh, some kind of act for someone else, it could kind of foster those feelings of compassion in you mm-hmm. after the fact. And I think I think that's very interesting, actually. Yeah. Um, I, you would think ideally you'd want to just 
genuinely feel the compassion first. But, but it's interesting that it works the other way around. Yeah, because like the way I would think about it is from a developmental perspective. Like, let's say kids a lot of times aren't compassionate, right? Because like that's just kind of what it is to develop, right? Um, and so, how do you foster a sense of compassion? A lot of times, parents kind of sort of nudge them into doing kind things for others, so they could kind of see what the results are. Mm. So it's like from our kind of psyche, right? We're t- I don't know. I I don't want to go into this too much because I don't know enough to say. But for let's say a lot of kids, they struggle with being empathic. So it's something that they have to kind of be taught to do. And sometimes the technique that parents use is literally just having them like do nice things for other people just to see what the result is. Mm-hmm. So if they experience gratitude, if they experience, let's say, somebody giving them something in return because they're so grateful, they can see that sort of being compassionate is much more sort of preferable on average, obviously, for the most part, than being selfish. Mm. Yeah. I don't, you know, it, it, just talking about the teaching of it, granted, yeah, the Z-Gens um, and millennials apparently research is showing, you know, do have less empathy. I'm not blaming them for that. I think it has to do with the world we're living in right now. Mm-hmm. And I talk about that in the book. Um, but as human beings, we, you know, some of Bowlby's work with Ainsworth and, and Mary Main did show that that these little toddlers were instinctively compassionate if somebody dropped their keys for example um their instinct was to go over and pick them up and hand them back to the person oh wow that's compassion that's understanding that that person needed those keys and um it's the act of doing something to aid in in you know that person's need in this case the need of the keys or whatnot Mm -hmm. um so you don't have to understand somebody in sense of, uh, you know, oh, well, you're stressed out because you're going to, you know, go on stage and give a speech. And yet, you know, I don't have any problem with that. So I, I don't know why you're so stressed out. You don't have to understand. You can have a completely different experience to just realize, wow, you're really stressed out right now. And mm-hmm. so, you know, here, let me help you. Yeah. Re- regardless of whether you would be stressed out about that thing or not. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um and let's say um, in the case of children, like uh, let's say there's, uh, there's maybe some parents listening to this show. Um, what would you recommend maybe as far as in relation to maybe screen time or video games or anything really tech related? How maybe they should go about, I mean, and this, this is a very broad question. So, I mean, That's okay. stop me if I, but how they should kind of go about rearing their children. Like at what age should they really start? Um, using this sort of technology, how should it be kind of like what kind of boundaries should sort of be placed around it? Um, and well, um, I, I, yeah, yeah, go ahead. no, no, go ahead. I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah, I cut you off there. I did, maybe you didn't finish your question. Um, the, the at what age, I mean, I, I would say as long as you can stave technology off, you know, it's a good thing. I think, again, one of the allure these days of your kids having smartphones is that it it's ironically does create a sense of safety it's a lifeline you know where you you know you know your child you know can call if in a bad situation um and you know there's also tracking you know where your child is for many parents that creates a sense of ease so it's not that technology doesn't promote any safety there are aspects of it that 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 do but i guess some basic guidelines would be you know Technology, um, in definitely no game video consoles in the bedroom. It just, I mean, the research has shown this, but it's um, it's just true. I mean, that you can't uh, monitor that, especially at night. Kids can go to bed, but they can get up. Um, and if it's all right there at their fingertips, it's addictive. It's not their fault. 
it's just addictive. It's an addictive device. Um, and so they're likely to go on it. Same thing with laptops, tablets, smartphones. Um, you know, I just recommend that those things be plugged in at night outside the room for start, um, to start with, you know, that those that, that we get our kids to get good restorative sleep because they're not these days. Um, and, uh, technology gets in the way of them getting sleep. Um, so to, to set boundaries around place, not having those things in the bedroom, set boundaries around time. I mean, I know this is so hard, especially with teens and homework, but, you know, ideally if, if, if kids can be off their devices one to two hours before bedtime, it really will help with the melatonin onset. Um, you know, it will help with the um, winding down from the overstimulation of the screen. It will help them get more restorative sleep. When they get more restorative sleep, they're going to behave better the next day. They're going to perform better. But I think the overriding principle, and this is, I do talk about this in the book, is uh, it's such a common experience, and I've fallen into it myself at times, to get frustrated with the team, get off the device to get into an argument about it, right? It's a push-pull thing. You know, I'm just finishing a game or, well, I'm just, you know, just texting this person or, you know, leave me alone. It's fine. It's not a big deal. Um, And I would try to approach your kids with compassion. It is not their fault. We handed them really addictive devices. Uh We did. Um, And um, expected them to somehow monitor themselves. Uh, and so they're caught, they're struggling. And so we have to compassionately set the boundaries. And it's not about not setting them and saying, oh, that's okay, I understand. It's about, yeah, I'm really sorry, but I have to take the phone now. Because it's too hard to get off of it yourself. It's just too hard. And it's not your fault. Yeah, yeah. I really like that example of, um, there was a child named Alex. Uh, yeah. Yeah, who couldn't stop playing Fortnite. Mm, and, yeah, that's yeah. addictive. Oh, yeah. And, mm-hmm. And hey, it's a it's a great game. We all we understand, sure. But the yeah. thing is, it's like uh, he was playing it too much, and uh, he wasn't interacting with the other kids. Uh, he'd just kind of be playing there for hours on end. Mm-hmm. His parents tried to, uh, no, his mother tried to place a limitation on it. However, it was not successful because I believe he was just entering his preteens. I believe twelve or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. So he was starting to throw tantrums, mm-hmm. and since he was bigger and all that, this was becoming a real problem. Right. Not that it wasn't before, but it's getting even more of a problem, right? So uh, she decides to send Alex to a day camp, I believe during a, one particular summer. Mm-hmm. It was an away camp, yeah, an, away an overnight camp. away camp for weeks. I think four or six weeks, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he began interacting with the other kids there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't know his exact experience there, but when he had come back, he was a changed person. He was calmer. Uh, he seemed to let um, problems like like water off a duck's back, like things would not bother him as such. He was less I like that reactive. Metaphor. Yeah, <laughs> B- bar- borrowed metaphor. <laughs> yeah. Also, I think it was in the book something about okay. something off his back. Okay, for sure. Let things roll off his back. Probably. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But I like your version of it. What? <laughs> the point. <laughs> yes, the point is that um, even though it seemed probably from his perspective to be something that was counter and like it, he he was probably thinking i just want to play my video games mm-hmm. and and pr- probably he's thinking no it's okay you know or i'm a kid it's fine like whatever his perspective is it made sense to him yeah and from the parents perspective you get it too because he's spending too much time doing it so 
in a way you can argue like them making that decision it was counterintuitive to him, but in the end ended up helping him. Yeah. And it's kind of like, I guess that's that parental role where you have to make certain choices that are in their best interest as opposed to that in the moment, whatever is their logic or sophistry that they're kind of putting out there. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, say, uh, say it's already 9 o'clock or something, they have to be in bed 10, 30, 11, and mm -hmm. you have the rule. Like, you don't use your phone for an hour to right. two hours. Mm -hmm. If they say, oh, I'm just texting and all that, it's hard to argue with that logic. Mm -hmm. They're thinking, oh, it's okay, whatever it is I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But then it's you got to understand the parent side of it, yeah. right? Where it's like, I'm really trying to show you the right way. And these things have such a hold on you yeah. that I, we have to do it this way. I hear you. And I don't know. Well, it, the, the other thing is, you know, with regard to addiction, any kind of addiction, you know, you can tell somebody not to drink or not to watch the news after they come home from work or whatever. But you need to get them to be able to you know, engage in doing something else during that time when they would normally be drinking or watching the news. I'm just using those as examples of things we can get addicted to. Uh, and the same thing goes with technology. And in Alex's case, you know, it wasn't just that they sent him away and took, you know, the, the camp didn't allow any technology, but they put him in nature, which I talk about a lot in the book, um, and in activity, in outdoor activity, which then he he found a new tool um, to engage his boredom because it's all started with I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored, right? He's an ADHD kid. Uh, and, you know, that really changed him. He actually begs for that camp every year still. I think he's 14 now or 13, maybe 13, 14. Um, and it's because he found, you know, other... Um, you know, ways of stimulating, you know, his brain and his body um, other than the video games. And so sometimes it's, it's if we just focus on taking it away, um, it's harder. But if there's replacement, you know, like, hey, you know, let's go down to the basketball court or, you know, let's uh, get outside and ride your bike and, you know, things like that. Um, the kid might not want to do it at first, but ultimately um, that becomes a good tool um, and actually simultaneously a stress relieving tool for them if it's exercise or being outside in nature. Yeah. And so um, what's really cool now that I'm thinking about it is that we're actually doing this episode today and not last week. So because I have a story to share with one of my clients that I wouldn't have had last week. Because uh, I actually, okay, cool. Yeah, right. So, um, okay. So what I also think in terms of kind of solutions is that we need sort of more leaders, right? And we need more leaders in the sense of having more people to kind of be open and vulnerable and being able to be who they are. And so interestingly, yesterday I had a session with one of my clients who, so he's much younger. He's, um, he's a college student. And so a lot of what we work on is kind of self-acceptance and kind of letting go of the value of being sort of popular or kind of famous, right? For, um, I guess, more kind of shallow or more sort of um, reasons that have to do with kind of societal expectations, right? So he was telling me the story and which was like, like it really just blew me away. So he was, so he's like this really unique kid, right? And um, so he pretty much, he kind of like the way he dressed the way he looks it's very unique so he's like like you can see it if you ever like saw this person on the street it's like it's very 
obvious that he stands out. And so when he was in high school, he was like picked on for it. And so for him, the kind of internal struggle is, you know, do I kind of do and do I sort of um, behave and act and dress the way I want to in a way that makes me feel comfortable with me? Or do I sort of try to meet societal expectations to fit in and kind of be accepted within, um, I guess, kind of let's say, not necessarily the group, but like the popular group. Mm -hmm. And so he told me the story and he said, you know, as I was struggling with this, he said, you know, I still have these acquaintances in high school and some of them came up to me or, you know, kind of texted me or just kind of just told me in different ways. They said, hey, you know, because you were who you were in high school, I was able to be who I was. And so one person actually told them who was a transgender girl, she said she ended up kind of coming out and being who she thought that she actually was because he was the trendsetter for her. And I Mm -hmm. thought that was like, so amazing like here's this kid who's like struggling with his self-image and yet he's a leader for all of these other people who felt like they couldn't be themselves and so in his mind right so amazing and so in his mind he's thinking like oh my god i'm not good enough because i don't meet this standard or this expectation and yet for other people they're like oh my god dude without you i would have never been the person that i was i know that's that power of being honest with each other right i mean gosh that's a great story yeah wow and i gotta tell him about this so you can watch it but like i would have never had it last week you know like napoleon and them say everything happens for a reason this is literally it (laughs) (laughs) right there we go right Right. (laughs) all right and by the way um see i i almost wanted to do this earlier but in the interest of time i'll so I want to go back to uh, meditation and mindfulness for a moment, Shoot. just to kind of highlight what are the some of the benefits of it. Because one thing I, I love is the way you framed why mindfulness and meditation is important in chapter three. Mm-hmm. Uh, because something about... So here's the thing. Uh, there There is that stigma associated with meditation. Like uh, it's uh, a, a woo-woo thing or it belongs to a particular religion or this or that. And I like how you actually kind of framed it in a way where, no, it, it doesn't have to be that. And it's not that actually. It, it's more about um, paying attention to what's going on inside and out there. And even you can be uh, in meditation with someone else or by yourself and uh, there was this, um, so some of the things that it helps, uh, meditation is, uh, sharpens your cognitive skills, uh, proves your working memory, uh, decreases anxiety and depression, uh, decreases blood pressure, uh, makes us feel more connected to ourselves and to others, uh, increases a sense of well-being and decreases stress. Now, what's great is, uh, kind of how it comes full circle is by reducing stress, you're able to sort of build up that. The, a secure attachment, uh, one in relationship to yourself and to others. And if more people meditated, that can have cascading effects societally, actually. That's a good insight. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's why I really think this idea of mindfulness in schools is so key. If we get kids to learn meditation at a younger age, I mean, David Lynch has a program called the Quiet Time Program. He's been doing this. You know, and the results are extremely positive. Um, it really, uh, yeah, I agree. I, I absolutely agree. It could help society immensely. And one thing that's, it's almost, it's not like it's an, just an option anymore. I feel like it's actually almost a necessity, given how overly stimulated we are. Right. Yes. And, yeah. So since it's a necessity, that that's why, like, for example, I value books like these, because it kind of, how should I put it? It's it's pointing out something that 
I'm, I'm, I'm going in circles. Yes, it's something that's necessary, right? It's, it's not something that we can just let the progression of technology and social media kind of take its course. Because if we do without really intervening, uh, the, already the momentum is insane with how much momentum it's gotten. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's definitely necessary to teach things like this. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it should eventually be kind of mandatory in schools. I hear you. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we have finally come to the end of the road. Great. <laughs> yes. Thank well, you both. Thank you so much for coming on. I thought this was such an insightful and enlightening episode. It's great yeah, to talk with you. Well, Alan, yeah, final questions, thoughts, comments? Um, well, actually, yeah. If, if we wanted to uh, follow you, let's say, on uh, social media, where, where could we find you? Yeah, so my website is megvandusen.com. That's M-E-G-V-A-N-D-E-U-S-E-N.com. Um, my Twitter is, uh, handle is at Dr. Van Dusen. Um, and my book is on Amazon right now, Stressed right. in the U.S. And she's yeah. talking about this book, <laughs> Stressed in the U.S., 12 mm -hmm. Tools to Tackle Anxiety, Loneliness, Tech Addiction, and More. Yeah, right. and I mean, we've already gone through so many parts of it, and Meg, it's like, it's so phenomenal. You should have seen my notes. My notes <laughs> oh, and what oh, we talked about, oh, it's hilarious, the difference. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, same here. Yeah, there were a lot of things that we didn't focus on. I actually had oh, stuff. Oh, I know. It's, I mean, it's okay. I figured that would happen. No, I mean, yeah. that's it's good. Right, right, right. We, I know we could talk. We could talk a long time. Yeah, I, and I actually had notes on kind of um, the sort of how it affects brain chemistry, uh, memories, connection to secure attachment style. Yeah, right. and the story that you had when you talked about being one years old and having that memory. Yeah. Oh, by the way, can you mention that before we go? That's actually a really cool story. The memory that you have when you were yeah, one. I know it's very bizarre. Uh -huh. It's not. It's not common to have memories that young. Yep. I'm assuming I was around one. I was in a crib still. Um, so I could have been anywhere up till two, I guess. But um, I remember, you know, being very scared and uh, terrified, really waking up being very terrified. The room was dark. And I remember a being coming into the room. I remember the sensation. So early memories, you really do remember sensation because you don't have any verbal yet. I remember the sensation of being picked up. Um, later, I learned that this was my father, and this would happen quite frequently, uh, that he would come in. And when I was picked up and held in his arms, and I remember the perspective changing from the ceiling to the wall, because now I was upright in his arms, uh, just this sense of calm and ease and well-being and, you know, the fear went away. Um, I just remember the, the emotional feeling and the physical feeling of that. Mm -hmm. And then I remember the feeling of being uh, put back down again <laughs> in the crib, I guess. And, um, you know, that, that kind of terror happening all over again. So the picking up and the putting down, I, I hadn't, wasn't obviously ready to be put back down again, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, but that is just an example of how we begin to create secure attachment. I'm terrified. I'm baby. You know, it's just, where am I? What is this? I have a sensation of feeling in my body of being scared. And these loving arms come literally holding me, um, creating a sense of ease. I'm here for you. I get it. I understand. I have your back. Um, and I, that's palpable to me, that memory. Yeah, lovely. Wow. All right, Meg, thank you so much again for coming on today. Okay, thank you guys. All right, bye-bye. 
All right. That was a very cool episode. Super enlightening. All right, guys. So you know where to follow us. You found us. Follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Instagram and on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Yep. Uh, remember to subscribe. Hit the bell. Hit the bell. <laughs> and this is our 30th episode. Yeah. Look forward to the next one. See you guys next week. See ya.